The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning, everyone. It's interesting that, as Randy said, the subject of the Christian and our relationship to money and economics uh, is never a bestseller either in, uh, when it comes to written material either. And that's uh, an interesting phenomenon given the situation both in the church and in our uh, culture today. And as we look uh, to the welfare economies of Europe, and Europe is perhaps on the verge of another recession right now, the uh, Eurozone is panicking about uh, possible uh, another recession coming. Uh, in fact, some of the uh, economies already looking like they're in recession. And given the fact that the Christian church in the West uh, has lost a great deal of its wealth, I mean, some of you are, how many of you are pastors here today? This is a few pastors. And uh, you will know that uh, for much of the church today, one of the reasons why so many churches have closed down and continue to close down, how many of the uh, uh, properties in the city uh, have been sold off, is that church is increasingly broke uh, and struggling uh, financially. And of course, the uh, issue of uh, the, the, the few times that we come around to addressing the issue of finances tends to be when we need to give a sermon on tithing or giving because uh, the, uh, the, the budget is, uh, we're not meeting budget or we want to make increases to the budget and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, today, the, the main event is Brian Matson, our, our colleague up from uh, the U.S. But I want to kick us off today uh, by talking a little bit about the relationship between uh, economics and the atonement, believe it or not. Economics and the atonement of Christ. It was uh, Richard Baxter, the Puritan, who said, poverty also has its temptations, for even a poor man may be undone by the love of that wealth and plenty which he never had. And the poor may perish for overloving the world that they never yet prospered in. And uh, it's not simply the rich that have to deal with the question of money and economics. It's also the poor. Now, bad economics can often lead to very bad theology. It's true that bad theology can lead to bad economics, but bad economics can also lead to very bad theology and, in fact, very fatal social consequences. In fact, I'm going to argue that our view of economic justice will often have a direct uh, impact upon what we think and believe about the atonement. In fact, there was a whole movement in Christian theology that asked the question as to whether salvation itself was economics. This was called liberation theology, came out of South America. Um, it's a form of Marxism. And 
many people think, well, liberation theology was a movement in the 60s and 70s, and it's really disappeared. Actually, it hasn't disappeared. It just went mainstream, as with a lot of these movements that spring up, and then they seem to disappear. But they haven't actually disappeared. They've just changed uh, suit, and they've moved into the church and gone essentially mainstream. Well, today what I want to do is talk about the connection between the atonement, debt, and ideas of economic uh, justice. Let's begin by uh, opening the Bible at Luke chapter 4, and I just want to read verses 16 through 21. Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21. Uh, This is a passage familiar to all of you, I'm sure, where uh, Jesus is beginning his ministry, and he goes into the synagogue. And this is what we read. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." Now, many of you will know immediately that this is a text. This text has a reference to Jubilee. Now, interestingly, the, the, the name of the EICC's journal, uh, which most of you receive, I suspect, is Jubilee, uh, because Jubilee was this great announcement of salvation, redemption, liberty, freedom, uh, in a sense, the essence of biblical faith. It, it signaled atonement. Uh, new creation, recreation, and new life. And Jesus opens his ministry here by declaring that in him, jubilee is realized. This is the true jubilee. Now, in much uh, contemporary Christian thought, and I have no doubt that most of you will have been exposed to this, the sign often of true gospel faith and as, we've, as I've said, even sometimes the nature of salvation itself is allegedly realized in identification with and liberation of the poor and the powerless by the redistribution of wealth. And we hear frequently the term in Christian circles, jubilee, jubilee, that we should announce jubilee. One emergent church writer has put it this way. He says, we live our identity as God's children and the adventure of God's redemption as we engage in God's mission of distributive justice, end quote. So that um, a a whole movement within the life of the church, and and it was said to me recently by somebody, well, the emergent church is passe. You know, who's talking about the emergent church anymore? Well, I am. Um, And the reason for that is that even though the popularity of some of the uh, leaders of that movement may have waned, it's only because its ideas have gone mainstream. They're in all of the seminaries. They've moved throughout all of the churches. You don't need to talk about a silo now called the emergent church because 
the ideas of the emergent church movement have permeated uh, most church movements quite deeply, and certainly the seminaries. Now, it's not a new idea that the somehow the mission of the church and the calling of God's people in terms of economics is to redistribute wealth. In fact, amongst uh, my uh, a movement in the history of the church called the Puritans, there were even radicals amongst them. They were called antinomians, diggers, and levelers who actually advocated for the abolition of private property. And they did this on the basis that this was a Christian uh, concept. However, the dominant view of, of evangelicals throughout most of the history of the church, and actually amongst the Puritans, was that biblical faith has to govern our social philosophy, including our view of economics and charity. Now, the term that is used, and we've used it before here at this leadership roundtable, is social justice to describe this economic perspective of redistribution. Social justice encompasses much more, of course, than merely the idea of redistribution of of people's holdings, Uh, but this is one aspect of it. And we've said before that social justice doesn't have, this idea of social justice does not have a Christian origin. In fact, it is Uh, a a philosophy of life and reality that aims at replacing Christianity with a secular and now increasingly pagan understanding of the church and the state. Interestingly enough, it was Marcello Perra, who was the former president of the Italian Senate, who said this uh, in his book, Why We Should Call Ourselves Christians. He said this, the church doesn't seem to realize that much of this secularization is the result of the welfare state and of the concept of social justice, to which its own social doctrine also appeals. So here you have a Catholic, member of, former member, uh, president of the Italian Senate, talking about the church's economic views, appealing to social justice. He says, if the state gives you everything that your family, your parish, and your community once gave you, why do you even need the church? And yet Christians ask why so many people today are disinterested in Christianity and don't attend the worship services of the churches in Europe. Well, God's Word actually has a lot to say about economic justice, about economic relations in light of the atonement. Now, this very significant aspect of, uh, of biblical legislation with respect to economics in Israel was the law of jubilee. And this has been subject to a great deal of discussion and reflection in theological circles, and and it's often used as a rallying cry for debt relief, redistribution of wealth, and in many cases, the complete relativization of private property. That this should be the church's view, this should be the Christian view. They often cite the book of Acts and talk about the believers sharing everything in common there, uh, as though that were a a paradigmatic statement about Christian communism, to sell their property and share it together and so forth, overlooking the fact that that was only done in Jerusalem, and that's because the early church there in Jerusalem believed the prophecy of Jesus that Jerusalem was going to be sacked and destroyed, and therefore there wasn't a good much point in having holdings in 
a city that was going to be completely destroyed. So the church there, there was also a famine, and we see the church sharing and so on and so forth. But there are various appeals to attempt to justify the idea of a kind of Christian communism based on this idea of jubilee. And that because of this special interest in the idea of jubilee as a kind of basis for Christian economics that I wanted to talk a bit about it today. Now, the, uh, the sub- jubilee is an aspect of the sabbatical principle. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year in Old Testament law. So we have on the seventh day of uh, the, the first day of the week, rather, we have our Sabbath. It was the last day of the week for the Jews. Uh, it was a lunar calendar, though, so it wasn't a Saturday. I haven't got time to talk about that. It wasn't a Saturday all the time. The Seventh-day Adventists are wrong about that. It was a different calendar, but that's a digression. The Sabbath was every seven years, the sabbatical year. And the Sabbath of Sabbaths, seven times seven is 49, I think, if my math is correct. And the 50th year was the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It was the Jubilee year. It was the kind of ultimate Sabbath year, if you will, and it had some special provisions associated with it. And it's typically invoked by missiologists as an exemplary expression of a philosophy of radical emancipation, of egalitarian justice in the face of vested interest in property rights. So this is pointed to, this event is pointed to as the basis of Christian economics, the jubilee. And this involves debt cancellation and then a state-sanctioned redistribution of wealth. And I want to pick on one particular theologian. I think Brian is probably doing something similar in his talk, but, but I, I am going to pick on one concrete illustration of this to land the plane for you a little bit in the work of a man named Brian Walsh. He is a Canadian academic theologian and cultural commentator. Just so you know that I'm not just pulling this out of the air. He's a professor in Toronto. Um, he's an advocate of all of these things, and uh, he is, I use him essentially as typical of the kind of arguments that you now hear throughout the seminaries and increasingly in our churches. And what he sets forth is a statist, that's a state-controlled, interventionist, socialist model of economics, which he says is based in the memory of Jubilee, the memory of Jubilee. So here you have this idea that you have Jubilee is is a memory that we have, and we are to base contemporary economics on the memory of Jubilee. And he tells us that this model of his, which is interventionist, that is a state-controlled market, will restore economic justice to society. He calls it a mixed economy. And in his own words, he says, those who reject his... Christian economic model are on the side of those raping the world and, in fact, raping God himself. And his justification for that is he says that man is in covenant with God, uh, with humankind. God is in covenant with humankind, and he finds himself wedded to an abusive partner, and God is essentially a kind of cosmic victim in in this Christian view. He's a victim of an abusive partner to whom he is wedded. Now, the suffering love of God, he says, sends Jesus to the cross as our great example of non-retaliation. Now, I want you to pick up on the terminology that's being used because you will recognize it. Jesus expressed solidarity with the oppressed 
and the marginalized at the cross. And so when this view of the atonement, he says, is applied to economics, jubilee or liberation must be declared. So we take a particular view of the atonement and we declare jubilee through it, and it has certain social implications. So the first thing we have to do is, is understand, well, what is Jubilee? Well, I'll tell you what Walsh says it is, and it's not a bad description. He says, in the 50th year, Jubilee is proclaimed, and all who have lost their lands and all who have been sold into slavery are to receive their land back and be set free from slavery. Now, end quote. Now, that is not actually a, a particularly accurate statement because it doesn't apply to all who lost their lands. It didn't apply to all who'd been sold into slavery. It didn't apply to everyone getting all their lands back. So You've already got a grotesque overstatement of uh, the, the issue of Jubilee. Um, but it was Jesus, as they say, in the synagogue in Luke 4, who announced the Jubilee, that it was being fulfilled in him. And so Walsh, he sees these implications in this messianic announcement. This is the implications that Walsh sees. He says this, today is the year of Jubilee. He says, this is what Jesus was saying. Today in my presence and in my proclamation is jubilee. Now, that's true. The poor hear good news. Captives are set free from prisons, and the oppressed are set free. Today, the shocked and awed people of South America hear good news. Notice the reference to South America. Today, the prisoners of Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib hear good news. Today, those who have been oppressed by IMF structural adjustment programs, trade liberalization, privatization, and exclusion from economic life. Today, they go free, end quote. Now, for Walsh and for many other social justice advocates today, the essential problem for humanity is the environment. And social and economic structures that control the environment and the problem specifically of privatization of bankers and employers raping the world. This is the, this is the theological motif. And so what happens is Jesus' announcement of Jubilee is stripped of its supernatural connotations, and it's reduced to a socialistic form of humanitarianism, a word which, like humanization, which means uh, uh, to make like that which is human, Modern theories of mission in the Christian church are totally enamored with these terms, humanization, humanitarianism, and so forth. Now, the original meaning, interestingly enough, of the word humanitarian is this, and I'm quoting now from the Chambers 20th Century Dictionary, New Edition, 1972, humanitarian, a humanitarian is, quote, one who denies the divinity of Christ and holds him to be a mere man. Now, when I first read that, I have to tell you, I was really shocked. A humanitarian is one who denies the divinity of Christ and holds him to be a mere man. Now, that word was taken, it was co-opted, and it was given a second meaning. And what is that meaning? The one that you're probably more familiar with, love for humanity and benevolence. When you say, well, she's a wonderful humanitarian, you mean that they're somebody who is concerned for the poor, concerned for the needy, uh, those who are uh, concerned about justice. They're a good person. They're benevolent. They're humanitarian. And yet the original meaning of that term, 
with somebody who denies the supernatural, especially the divinity and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when you redefine a word, what happens is the two meanings for a season will run in parallel so that people will have both meanings. When you add a meaning, people will have both meanings in their minds. So what did this mean? Well, the implication there is that those who deny the divinity of Christ are the true lovers of humankind. They're the, real, they're the ones who express true benevolence. This is a modern, cynical manipulation of words, which says a lot about our age, I think. But despite such misunderstandings, it is very significant that Walsh connects Jubilee and Atonement, because they are connected, just not in the way he thinks. To the Christian mind, the Jubilee is the supreme expression of the Mosaic legislation of the Sabbath principle, the Jubilee year, And the Jubilee began, interestingly enough, with the sounding of the trumpet on the Day of Atonement. Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement with the sounding of the trumpet. As an expression of the Sabbath, its primary purpose was not humanitarian because, or I should say relief of the poor, because the poor could eat of the field in the Sabbath year every year. And the law required gleaning rights Uh, sorry, the Sabbath year, every seventh year, was to lie fallow for the poor, and and the law required gleaning rights for the poor in the field every year. So every year there was provision for the poor, and every seventh year was a special provision for the poor. So the primary purpose of the Jubilee was not to set forth some groundbreaking humanitarian principle. Rather, Jubilee sets forth the restoration and restitution of all things in Christ. And that word restitution is very important because in the end, that's what the cross of Christ was about. Paying our debt, satisfying justice, making restitution. Jubilee is about the restitution of all things in God's provision. And this was an expression of redemption from slavery By the atonement, what was seen first in the Passover feast and the escape from Egypt, there was an escape from slavery there, so it was liberty, freedom. And the temple sacrificial system in the tabernacle in the temple also set forth redemption and liberty. And so Jubilee began on the evening of the Day of Atonement, and what it was making clear was that the foundation of the new creation was through the blood of the Lamb of the Covenant. That was the basis of the new creation. And atonement means, of course, that God has forgiven our debts through Christ. And that's the nature of the atonement, that we are forgiven our debts in Jesus Christ, our insurmountable debt to sin. It was, it was uh, a penalty that, of course, led to death. And the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. So the blood of Christ remits sin as our debt is paid. And as such, we have an obligation, we're told, to forgive our brothers and sisters in the covenant. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's another interesting subject there, the nature of true forgiveness that involves restitution. We see Zacchaeus is forgiven and finds salvation, not because he just said, oh, sorry about that, but because he made restitution as far as was possible, as far as it depended upon him. Um, 
many of our concepts of forgiveness today are lawless, whereas God says, we forgive as Christ has forgiven us. We can't just sweep things under the carpet and not deal with things. Amazing as a pastor, lots of pastors here, how often you deal with people and you're trying to deal with roots of bitterness and, and conflict and unconfessed sin and so forth, and you get people together and say, well, I've already forgiven them. And it's totally evident that there's absolutely no forgiveness whatsoever, ever, because there's been no true confession of sin. And where restitution may be necessary, there's been no restitution. And so that's no forgiveness. There's no forgiveness at all there. Anyway, that's a sidebar. Let's not go there. Otherwise, we'll lose our time here. So the basic premise of God's law is restitution. And the blood of the Passover lamb was shed, the sacrificial system pointed to Christ, the Lamb of God, and the Day of Atonement at the beginning of Jubilee there brought all of this to mind, as it does for us. It brought it to mind for the ancient Hebrews. It brought it to mind for the early church. Sin has created this insurmountable debt to God, and Jubilee is about the cancellation of debt for the people of faith. Now, this meant in the Israelite economy, there was an expression of this socially, and the social expression of this was that rural land holdings reverted to their original owners, slaves were freed as they were on each sabbatical year. That's what happened at the Jubilee. Now, considering the theology and history surrounding the law of Jubilee, we have to recognize that there's a distortion then of how Jubilee is typically used by Christians today. The first thing is that the primary application of its meaning is usually to economics and not to theology proper. That is sin and redemption by debt cancellation through blood of the, the blood of the atonement so that people can enter into God's Sabbath rest. That's what Jubilee is ultimately about, the rest of God, the recreation, the new creation. We enter it in through the, the cancellation of our debts. We enter into it. And so the attempt to shoehorn statist politics into the meaning of the festival also neglects the fact that biblical law puts the control of property, even in the law of Jubilee, and thereby the control of production into the hands of the private family and not the state. So what was happening at Jubilee was that property was restored to the freeholders, of that property. It was private family property, and it was their means of production. So this is not communism, okay? Jubilee applied, first of all, only to a Hebrew, Hebrew family's rural land holdings in the promised land. It didn't apply to town, town property, city property, and so on. And as Leviticus 25 verses 13 through 17 makes clear, in buying and selling such holdings, People were trading a maximum 50-year leasehold. So let's say we're all Hebrews here, and, and I want some extra land to do some farming. And you say to me, well, there's 25 years to Jubilee. I will lease you uh, my land for X amount. And I would say, oh, that's a bit pricey. So-and-so down the road there is offering his for a little bit less than that. You negotiate. It's a leasehold for 25 years. And obviously, the value of that leasehold would fluctuate depending upon the amount, the number of years left till Jubilee. And at that point, at Jubilee, the property was returned to the family that owned the freehold. Now, they, they may have been a bond servant or they may have been a wealthy businessman. It didn't, it didn't matter. You might have been a super wealthy uh, Jew. Your land would still have been returned to you at Jubilee. 
So it wasn't a case of, let's take all of the, 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 the property of the rich Jews, Hebrews, and give it to the poor ones. It was whether you were rich or poor, that freehold, your apportioned part in the promised land was restored to you, your means of production. And the idea was to stipulate that no individual had the right to endanger the future of their family or tribe by selling their private land, that is their source of production, off permanently and turning the inheritance of their children into a capital asset, which would have disinherited their children. Because the temptation would have been in the promised land to say, well, let's just, it's, we're having a hard time, let's just sell the land off. Well, of course, all future generations then would have been disinherited. There would have been no property to inherit, at least in that part of the promised land that was appointed to them in terms of their rural holdings. Now, the scholar Paul Mills shows the essential idea of Jubilee was, quote, a family should not have been totally without a means of independent support for more than a generation. So you couldn't permanently disinherit your children. And this means that Jubilee landlords had nothing in common with Greek communism as set forth in Plato's Republic or later attempts to try and turn Jubilee into some kind of Marxist project. It is nothing to do with the forcible redistribution of people's holdings. Attempts to relate the communistic and Marxist ideas Ideals in economics to Jubilee are putting Scripture to an illegitimate use. In fact, actually by a rather cruel irony, modern socialism, Fabian socialism or state interventionist socialism or, or, or even more pure Marxist forms of socialism, they're in the business of disinheriting families through inheritance taxes, for example which is one of the primary means today whereby socialistic states like the United Kingdom, my own home country, strips the family of its assets for the purpose of redistribution. So in Britain, there are 40%. Uh, the, in, the rate of inheritance tax is about 40%. So most families, when their parents die, they have to sell. The taxes are due immediately. They can't come up with some payment scheme over a number of years to pay the 40%. They have to sell the property immediately, 40% of which, after a, a pathetic tax-free ceiling, goes to the state. And so families are stripped not only of uh, a, a, a movable liquid asset money, they are stripped of their property by inheritance taxes by socialistic states which is a direct contravention of the law of Jubilee. So you have socialist theologians appealing to Jubilee as a Christian form of economics, which asset strips the family in direct contravention of the purpose of the laws of Jubilee. The temporary Hebrew land model was closer to medieval feudalism than it is to modern welfareism, which men like Brian Walsh are keen to defend. Assets were redistributed only in the sense that these rural land holdings were returned to the family that historically had the inheritance right to them. So there's no utopian planning here. There's no attempt to create an egalitarian order where everybody has the same amount of things. As Jonathan Burnside notes in his book, uh, God, Justice, and Society, he says that, quote, there is absolutely no attempt to redistribute movable assets such as animals. If the law was idealistic... Why not redistribute these as well? In other words, it was a very limited form of the restoration of family property that went on for the Jews with Jubilee 
Uh, the degree to which it was practiced were uncertain, but that was the idea of it. Now, in biblical law, we see here, even with the law of Jubilee, that the basic intention of God's law was to protect the family. That was the goal of it. This is not a law protecting the state or enriching the bureaucracy of the state. This was a law that was intended to protect the family. It's God's most basic and most protected institution. And in fact, princes and kings, that is the state, are judged for the theft of family land in the Bible. Ezekiel 46, 18 God severely judges King Ahab for the theft of Naboth's farmland. Do you recall that account where he desired the, uh, the, this, this little bit of land that this man had? And he stole it from him, and he's judged for it. All theft of private family property, whether it's by fraud or criminal seizure or state policy or progressive redistributive taxation, are a total violation of the law of God. And yet many Christians think it's a Christian thing to do to have steeply progressive taxes. The Bible recognizes only one tax, a head tax, the same for every adult male. And don't forget, income taxes and property taxes in this country were temporary measures, actually a temporary war measure, not a permanent measure to enrich the state and impoverish the people. The particular system then of land division in Israel amongst the 12 tribes is obviously no longer applicable because our nations are not divided up into tribal portions as was the promised land. And more critically, as one Christian economist has asserted it with respect to discontinuity here, national Israel, he says, was disinherited in AD 70. The kingdom of God was taken from national Israel and given to a new nation, the church, Matthew 21, 43. The jubilee landlords have ended forever. In other words, the Christian church doesn't have, God didn't by divine decree divide up Canada into specific portions so that every family in the church could have a piece and then get it restored to us. So the specific nature of the land laws of Jubilee that were pointing forward to the great Jubilee, the restoration of all things in Christ, have ended. But there's a third distortion that is again made with respect to Jubilee, with respect to indentured workers. Sometimes the Bible uses the term slaves. They were indentured workers. They were released every seventh year. And at Jubilee, they were restored to family lands. That is, they were Hebrews who had become bondservants through debt or through voluntary servitude, where they'd sold themselves as workers, often for, a sense for provision or for security. If you fell on hard times, you'd go to a family member or a fellow tribe or a kins- kinsman or a neighboring tribe and say, look, I, I want to work for you for the next six years because I'm, I'm broke. My harvest was poor or whatever. And on the seventh year, you were released from your servitude. However, Jubilee did not apply to criminal workers making restitution. So if you were a criminal and you'd stolen from people and you were were paying off your debts, you weren't released at Jubilee. So this references to all these terrorists being released from prison and so forth. There's nothing to do with the concept of Jubilee, nothing whatsoever. It all sounds very good when you run it all together in the one sentence, but criminals making restitution were not released on the Sabbath year or at Jubilee. And neither did uh, Jubilee apply to unconverted foreigners amongst them who were not covenant members. If you wanted Jubilee release and you were amongst the covenant people, you had to convert in Israel. 
And that's very interesting because it pointed forward to the truth of the gospel that there's no cancellation of the debt for the unbeliever, typifying that only those who are in Christ have satisfaction rendered for their debts. That's what Jubilee was pointing to. If you become a member of the covenant family, you're released from all your debts. The Jubilee year. Now, there's arguments among scholars about the sabbatical year, about the issue of longer-term debt. It's a debatable point. Was the seventh year a year of permanent release from uh, a debt that you'd incurred the previous six years? Or did you have a year off, a year when you were free from restoring, from repaying the debt? Uh, it seems mo- much more likely to me, based on what I've read and understood of this issue, that, it was a, that the, the seventh year was a temporary release from, you had a, a year off, it was rest, it was the year of rest, so that included rest from repayment of your debts. So that uh, uh, it didn't mean, well, anybody who owes somebody else money doesn't have to pay back if they can just hang on for six years. In fact, I actually knew a guy who owed a man $10,000 and said that uh, uh, he, didn't bother, he didn't pay it back because he knew this man took seriously biblical laws with respect to debt. And, he, and, and at the sixth year, he said, you have, to, you have to release me from my debt. Now, that was not the purpose of the, 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 the Sabbath year. So those like Walsh and others who try and co-opt Jubilee for various humanistic political causes, it's totally erroneous. And we have to be cautious that we don't uh, take proof texts, completely out of principles out of the Bible, completely out of their original context, and then try them, apply them to a situation that bears no relationship to it. Walsh says this is on the basis of the memory of Jubilee, which is vague enough to mean that maybe you can just apply a, an idea of release here to a whole boatload of completely different circumstances. And as I said in my book, The Mission of God, this appears to be theological dementia, if that's the memory of Jubilee. But the, there is an ongoing addiction to, incredibly... It astonished me when I was doing my master's degree some years ago at the University of Manchester uh, in mission theology. I was, I was shocked to discover how many missiologists, that is, people thinking about the mission of the church and its application to society, how many of them were addicted to Marxist economic theory, to the idea of institutionalized theft as a Christian view of economics, despite the butchery of the communist world in the 20th century and the, and the total failure of Marxism in Marxist countries even today. And despite the fact that Western Europe, having steadily adopted socialism and embracing this new socialist panacea of environmentalism, have gone into these debt-laden welfare economies that are now hanging in the balance on life support, basically. Debt and larceny have seemed to have been the, pri- the primary motive forces animating what's left of our European economies. Yet from a Christian standpoint, the Bible says that we are to eliminate debt as far as possible. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13:8 tells us, Owe no man anything except to love each other. I think if you talk to wealth management professionals who know a lot more about these things than I do, uh, like Randy, He'll tell you that one of the first principles of building wealth, any long-term wealth, is to eliminate debt as quickly as possible. Owe no man anything except to love one another, says Paul. That's the goal. 
that we should be debt-free. This is true love for humankind, that we are called, when we obey God, to have respect for our neighbor. And the one, Paul says, who loves another has fulfilled the law. So if we love our neighbor, we're going to fulfill God's law with respect to them. Now, as Randy said at the beginning, one of the two, actually, of the commandments, uh, of the the ten in the Decalogue, actually essentially deal with economics-related issues. You could argue there's a third there in terms of honor your father and your mother because of all the inheritance laws and so forth. But specifically, you shall not steal. has to do with private property. And you shall not covet. So you can't build an economics based around covetousness and greed and envy, the politics of envy that so dominates our culture today. We cannot rob others either by unpayable long-term debt coupled with inflation, mortgaging people's national future, nor theft by redistributive taxation in the name of love for the poor, because love is the fulfillment of the law, says Paul. So you can't have to take something that is contrary to God's law and say, well, we're doing this in the name of love. I often give the illustration to people that if... Uh, if we were to uh, just take, again, this room today, which is a little bit thinner than I'd hoped on the subject of economics, uh, and uh, we, perhaps you decided, well, so-and-so has got a lot more money than I have. And you notice their wallet out on the table, and they're getting some dessert. And you notice $50 bills hanging out of this thing. You think, that guy is loaded, and I'm really struggling at home, and you know I can't pay my car payment, and so on and so forth. And you take couple of $50 bills, you're not even going to notice there's such a wad in there and put them in your pocket and you leave. Now, if we found out about that, what would we as Christians think about that act? We would say that it's theft, that it was stealing, and that the person should restore the $100. The Bible says they should restore $200, actually double restitution because you've stolen somebody and the punishment is you restore what you in, what you intended to profit by that theft you restore as well double restitution but christian intellectuals thinking about economics say that if the state does that that's justice that if the state, through progressive forms of taxation, inheritance taxes and so forth, takes from the man or woman who has more and gives it away to everybody else, that is justice. When you personalize it, of course, it sounds like theft. When you put it into the general abstract and a faceless bureaucracy does it, it's justice. St. Paul reminds us that whatever our protestations may be about this issue, And however much we may think that so-and-so isn't being generous enough with his money or he doesn't tithe enough, he's not giving enough, you're welcome to your opinion. But St. Paul declares, if we steal from others or develop an economics of theft and envy in the name of love for the poor, that actually our motives, our agenda is something other than what we claim. Paul says this, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. So I can be the world's greatest do-gooder in a Pharisaic sense. If I don't have love, which is to fulfill God's law with respect to my neighbor, even my enemy, it's not love. There's something else. 
To be lawless is to be loveless. As one theologian tellingly remarks about this loveless failure of modernity, he says, the solution, that is, of modern statism, uh, uh, for Christians thinking about the issue of economics, he says the solution to it has been statism, state charity or welfareism as a substitute for Christian action. Both evangelicals and modernists contributed very substantially to the rise of the modern state. The evangelicals steadily retreated from Christian action in the areas of health, education, and welfare, and the state moved in. Furthermore, he observes that historically, in lawless criminal efforts to cancel debt by social revolutions, you know when you see, you know, in Greece... You know, the banks being firebombed and, you know, everybody writing. Well, these are attempts to, to have a social revolution that declares a kind of secular jubilee. These are counterfeit jubilees where we say, well, killing the bankers and the landowners and destroying the records and getting all the rich people, that's going to bring about justice. This is a counterfeit jubilee. The same writer says, men through their politics are trying to create a false jubilee, a false atonement a false cancellation of sins. But there is no jubilee for the ungodly because the debt cannot be repaid man's way, either by forgiveness, which is no forgiveness, or by the destruction of the creditor and records. We cannot have two plans of atonement. And the idea there being that modern uh, status politics is essentially uh, sadistic or masochistic in its attempt to atone for itself, for our own sins that we can actually be involved in an economics of sadism or masochism. The economics of masochism is where we say that by burden-bearing, by guilt payments, by carbon taxes, by cap-and-trade, by all these different... Te- we will somehow punish the West, punish uh, the, our economy, punish our pockets, and thereby atone for our sins, real or imagined. Or sadistic ones where we lay the punishment on a group or a, or a social class within society and say, they're responsible, let's get them for it, let's lay the punishment on them. The relationship between Jubilee then becomes abundantly clear. Between the Jubilee and Atonement becomes abundantly clear. We have to recognize that those who preach economic and political liberation as Jubilee are declaring a civic gospel. Now, we used to call this in the 19th century a social gospel. they're very similar. And the social gospel or the civic gospel offers a false model of the atonement and an an alternate plan of salvation. Uh, An Armenian theologian stated it this way. He says, the social gospel is really a civil gospel. It espouses salvation by the state and its laws and and, and its hope shifts from God to the state. This has a major impact on the doctrine of atonement. He writes, in the 1930s, a pastor who adopted the social gospel began to preach uh, also against the orthodox doctrine of Christ's atonement. He ridiculed it, calling it a butcher shop theology. This juxtaposition of the social or statist gospel and the denunciation of the blood atonement doctrine was an essential and logical one. If salvation is an act of state the work of men who are essentially good and unite to make a better world, to look for change in men through Christ's atonement rather than through the civil gospel is not only false but misleading. As a result, whenever the civil revolution flourishes, Christianity is under attack. Now, I think that statement hits the nail on the head. 
If people aren't rebels against God's law and under just sentence of death, that is, in debt to God and in need of his jubilee through Christ's day of atonement, then the cross actually ceases to be about the cancellation of the debt of sin and becomes, for these thinkers, a form of political solidarity, martyrdom, and victimhood. The atonement is retooled in political and even psychological terms, not theological terms. The all-conquering Christ, the Lion and the Lamb of Revelation 5, the victor over sin, death, and the devil, cancelling debt and disarming the rulers through the power of the cross, becomes this powerless victim, showing solidarity with the oppressed masses. And so people liken Jesus to Gandhi and the Buddha and so on and so forth. Walsh quotes Andrew Lincoln with approval in this regard. He says this, listen closely. The powers of evil are defeated, he says, not by some overwhelming display of divine power, but by the weakness of Christ's death. Sounds good so far, doesn't it? The death of the victim who has absorbed the destructive forces of the powers becomes precisely the point at which their domination is decisively brought to an end. Their claims, these are human figures now, remember. Their claims, their accusations, their oppressive and divisive influence have all been subverted by, the very, by a very different power, the power of the victim on the cross. Now, the reason a statement like that is so very dangerous is that it has, it seems partly right. Seems plausible, but listen to the carefully chosen wording domination, oppression, victim, subversion. These are, the, this is the language, these are pseudo-political terms of cultural Marxism employed to now re-describe in a new way what was going on at the cross. But the Bible says this in Revelation 5.5, 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's conquered. This is a message, you see, uh, of expiation and ransom by the blood of Christ. Jesus is surely not a victim in the sense that Walsh implies. Let's go again to Webster's Dictionary. Uh, victim is in, uh, the, the term victim is defined as first, one definition one, a living creature sacrificed to a deity or as a religious rite. There it's invoking the notions of pagan sacrifice to a god. And the second definition of the Webster's Dictionary is the common definition. One who is injured or killed by misfortune or calamity. Now, the Christ of Scripture was not a victim uh, or victimized in this sense. The same dictionary says to be victimized is to be, quote, a dupe, defrauded, swindled, or cheated. Rather, what does the Bible say about Christ's death? It says that he wasn't a victim or victimized, and he, he determined to go to Jerusalem to die. He determined to go to die. It tells us that he laid down his life of his own accord. He says, my life isn't taken from me. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. He defeated the adversary, sin and death, by the foreordained will of the Father. Now, that's the message of the Bible with respect to the nature of the atonement. Randy, how long do I have left? Five minutes? So Walsh's view of the atonement and all advocates of the statist jubilee as Christian economics, logically all of them do this. 
they de-emphasize the vicarious substitutionary atonement of Christ by blood. The blood atonement of Christ is de-emphasized or disappears altogether. Then, in place of what God requires to be laid on the altar to satisfy his justice, that's the blood of Christ, man places his own moral works, his self-punishment and his self-righteousness. This is the essence of moralism. It's the essence of Pharisaism, that man's works of self-righteousness can be a substitute for God's justice, God's law, remaking people then by human effort rather than by regeneration. It's interesting that Leviticus 10 speaks of the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. They're slain by God for offering strange fire, unauthorized fire to God in the tabernacle. Now, we're not told exactly what their crime was. It's possible that they were not using coals from the prescribed altar. They were approaching God in a way that he'd not commanded. It's possible that he'd gone into the holy place intoxicated. Whatever the nature of the infringement, there was a presumptuous act of sacrilege before a holy and righteous God. Now, sacrilege, interestingly enough, means theft from God. Sacrilege is theft from God. It's directed against God and his sovereignty and his authority. And it's where man seeks to correct or improve God's word on an act of arrogant presumption that well, that's your prescription, but we've got a better idea. So we've got a different offering. The sons of Aaron offered strange fire, presuming that they had a better means of approaching God than the offerings and oblations prescribed. And actually, since Eden, as we look back at uh, the history of the world, and especially as we look at the history of Christian theology, since Eden, men and women have often supposed themselves to be more holy or more righteous than God that they can improve on his word. The Pharisaic spirit is rife in today's church where theologians and churchmen and leaders so often see themselves as above the word of God, superior in their sensibilities, more righteous in their judgments than God's word. Not only so, some consider that they have a better way of atonement and a superior way of salvation. They have a better incense to be offered. In other words, I'm saying that the modern church on this point is filled with strange fire. And this is very evident in the popular emergent church literature. Now, you heard that I cited to you the situation in the, 19th, in the early 20th century, in the 1930s, with the social gospel. Well, these same themes have been picked up and have gone mainstream in the church and seminaries. For example, the openly heretical Brian McLaren considers vicarious atonement divine child abuse, he calls it. And he replaces it with his powerful weakness theory. Spot Walsh there and this Marxist motif in their ideas of the atonement. Steve Chalk in England, who I actually know, wrote to a number of years ago on the issue of homosexuality, on which he's gone liberal now, uh, is another purveyor of the civic gospel, one of the most popular evangelicals for decades in England, who condemns the doctrine of original sin, mocks the old covenant temple of God, and regards the vicarious blood atonement of Christ as a morally dubious and twisted version of events. Why? Well, because Chalk's cross is simply a moral example and his gospel is social improvement by means of copying the example. 
There's nothing new here. All of this was emphatically insisted on by Unitarians in the 19th century. They were just more theologically sophisticated. They were better educated and uh, had done more rigorous work than the contemporary version of this. But the, the Walsh's summary, in case you think I may be in any way distorting this, Walsh's summary of the meaning of the atonement in light of Jubilee is very, very revealing. And it sounds much more like the liberty, fraternity, and equality of the French Revolution than the Bible. This is what he says. Quote, Atonement is about setting things right, setting all things right. Okay. And when people are restored to community, and when economic relations are set right again, then the master-slave distinction must collapse. The unjust division between rich and poor must be overthrown. And the reality of some folks having possession of land and the resources for economic well-being, while others are dispossessed and left left destitute, must be rectified through a radical economic redistribution, end quote. That, for Walsh, is the meaning of the atonement. This is not the gospel. This is a doctrine of equalization through political sadism where guilty people lay the punishment for sin upon other guilty people. And there are theologians much more honest and astute enough to see that sin is not a monopoly of the rich or the poor or the right or the left. It's common to all of us. One philosopher has written, the civic gospel has not abandoned vicarious suffering and atonement by the innocent. It has merely transferred it from Christ to all men who must now suffer. Humanistic atonement demands vicarious suffering and payments as well. State-imposed vicarious suffering has no regenerating power. Instead, it destroys those it punishes as well as those it seeks to help. Statist atonement is destructive, not regenerative, because the state is a false savior. Biblical law and gospel, then, know nothing of equalization through coercive redistribution. They are concerned, though, with restitution, which alone sets things right, because it is the restoration of God's order, not humanity's counterfeit paradise. So, in conclusion, the denial of Christ's work of restitution the vicarious substitutionary atonement, the day of atonement to meet the debt of sin, if we deny that, if we deny Christ's work, we deny the reality of debt. If we say that Christ's atonement is unnecessary, what we've done is we've said there is no debt to God. And if we deny the reality of debt, we've denied jubilee. Because those who deny the reality of debt For them, there can be no jubilee because the meaning of jubilee is the cancellation of debt. So if you deny the atonement of Christ, you deny man's debt. And if you deny man's debt, you deny the possibility of jubilee. And so you see that this counterfeit Christian economics undermines the very idea of the atonement. There is no other way for a cancellation of debt to be affected. There is no other jubilee than the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ for sin. All other offerings are strange fire, and they come under the righteous judgment of God. Remember how our Lord Jesus himself prayed in the garden in Matthew 26, verses 39 and 42. He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. If there had been any other way for debt cancellation, for Jubilee to be announced, it would have been found. There wasn't one. None of this, I should add, makes the Christian, the evangelical, unconcerned about real oppression, poverty, or even care for the creation. As John Frame points out in Leviticus 19 and 23, there's a limitation on landowning harvesters for the sake of the poor. The edges of the fields were to be left for the poor to glean. This was actually hard work for the recipient of social assistance, but it was real and respectful means of social provision. It wasn't a dehumanizing handout. And in the sabbatical years, the fields were to lie fallow. Whatever grew in those fields was for the poor. And what the poor didn't eat was for the animals. And John Frame suggests that today this can be expressed by the giving of food to the poor by grocery stores and food banks. And others suggest we can have goodwill industries where poor restore donated items for sale uh, and live off the proceeds. This involves meaningful work on the part of those receiving help. Those are some contemporary equivalents that we could think of for our own society for uh, equivalents to gleaning in the Old Testament. What would be the contemporary forms of gleaning? They're almost... Uh, innumerable ways in which we could develop an approach to poverty there. The scriptures also urge on us a massive generosity of voluntary sharing and the joy of giving. There was a poor tithe and somewhere around 15% of our income was to be given to the Levites. Only a tenth of the first tenth was for the priest for the sanctuary. The rest was for health, welfare, and education. And that's why the church throughout the history of Christendom took care of health, welfare, and education until the 20th century. There are requirements in biblical law for rest for the land and beast and man. There were binding obligations upon all people for the purpose of good stewardship of the creation. And so the biblical picture, which I'm sure Brian is going to talk about with us, is not a couldn't-care-less attitude about poverty. It's the absolute opposite, but it doesn't involve theft We cannot, in the name of God's law, obey one aspect of God's law by denying the rest of it. We have to take, and the problem here, and and I'm diagnosing the issue here now, is that the reason we have this difficulty today is that we've we've picked pieces that we like, abstracted it from its context, and then says, well, just take that idea and stick it here. Whereas if we took the whole of God's word more seriously, we would be able to develop a holistic approach to the issue of poverty and welfare, as has been done by Christians in the past, liberty and freedom, without gross violations of God's law and bringing people into servitude and slavery. I would argue that today here in Canada, where about 50% of our income goes on taxes is that we practically work 50% of the year today for the state. Almost half of your work is as a slave ward of the state today. That is not the biblical picture. Winston Churchill once said, Socialism is a philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy. Its inherent virtue is the equal sharing of misery. There is a Christian way to think about economics, and uh, Brian is going to help us with that in our next session. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.